Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. And so we come to the end of another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, and very glad to have all of you with us. You know, uh, we're going to start the show today again with a conversation about Marjorie Taylor Greene. I I was thinking earlier this morning, it's really been fascinating. Just about a month ago, Georgia was in the national headlines because the state confirmed that at least for the 2020 election cycle, uh, Georgia voters were more than prepared to put Democrats in some offices uh, voting for Joe Biden for president. And then on uh, January 5th, electing uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff to the U.S. Senate, and suddenly Georgia uh, had a national image that seemed more progressive than what people thought of the state in the past. That may still be true, but Marjorie Taylor Greene has sent the state spinning in a different direction entirely. Um, I'll tell you what, let's introduce the panel. We'll talk about the vote last night to uh, strip her of her committee's Uh, and um, talk about the impact of that on her, on the state of Georgia, on her constituents, and on politics in uh, general. So let me get right to introducing the panel, and we'll go from there. Uh, We're joined today by Patricia Murphy, who not only is a political reporter at the AJC, but Patricia, since the last time you were here, you have made your debut as the new political columnist for the AJC, and um, it's really a thrill to see you begin, (laughs) launch that new phase of your career. Congratulations to you. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun, and I I know I'm just getting started, and that's a good feeling in journalism, honestly, so I'm really excited to do it, and to do it in my hometown, I'm just thrilled. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I can understand why that would be a really exciting uh, uh, thing for you. Um, We're going to talk a little bit about the column that will appear in the Sunday newspaper, and that's, uh, I think, already posted online or soon will be. Uh, You talk about David Ralston and his uh, personal uh, reaction to coronavirus, and we'll get to that a little later in the show. Um, We're joined by a colleague, a former colleague of yours, Donna Lowry, host of Lawmakers, the longest-running show in Georgia television, uh, which is on the air during the legislative session, 7 o'clock every night on GPB's uh, network uh, when the legislature is in session. And Donna, uh, Patricia, was she reported for you back in the day before she went over to the dark side of print? Yes, absolutely. And we miss her because she was so good. And we knew that she was we were just a little stepping stone in her monumentous, momentous, I should say, career. I mean, I I can't believe she slummed with us for a little bit, actually. Uh, She was wonderful. And we miss her. And I'm so excited for what she's doing now. Yeah. Um, Well, we're very happy that you're with us again this morning, Donna. Brian Robinson is back with us. He is a Republican political consultant. He's also the founder and president of Robinson Republic, the company that he created to do communications work, some in politics, uh, some in the in the private sector. Uh, Brian, thank you for being with us today. Always glad to be with you, Bill. Um, We're also joined for the first time, and I'm very happy to uh, say this by the relatively newly elected uh, minority leader, the Democratic leader in the state Senate, Senator Gloria Butler. Um, Senator, thank you for joining us today. I think it's important to note that you you started serving in the Georgia General Assembly as a, a legislator for DeKalb County, what, in 1999. You been in the legislature for some, more than 20 years at this point. You've got a lot of experience behind you, Senator. I do, and and thank you so much for inviting me uh, for this show this morning. Uh, congratulations to you, Patricia, and good morning, Donna and Brian. I'm delighted to be here, and Bill, you and I have uh, had conversations over the years, and I did appear yep. on your lawmaker show when you were on Lawmakers. Yep. So yep, it's great yep. to be with uh, you again for my first time on um, 
Rewind. And yes, I have been serving since 1999, uh, more than 20 years, and it's been quite a journey and an ex- a huge, humongous experience, and um, I've enjoyed the years that I've served. Well, thank you so much for being here. By the way, Senator... Uh, you have an impressive legislative uh, history, but I would be remiss if I did not point out that you are also the grandmother of two, but even more interesting, the <laughs> great-grandmother of seven. Gloria yes. Butler, you're not that old, for goodness sake. But they are. <laughs> they okay. Are <laughs> uh, well. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that recognition. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. All right. Uh, Patricia, let, let's let's talk Marjorie Taylor Greene here for a few minutes. And bef- before we do, uh, let's listen for a couple of minutes to just a little bit of the speech that she gave on the floor of the House before the vote uh, happened to strip her of her committee uh, positions last night. This is edited but it is completely in context. Here we go. You only know me by how Media Matters, CNN, MSNBC, and the rest of the mainstream media is portraying me. What you need to know about me is I'm a very regular American, just like the people I represent in my district. And I stumbled across something, and this was at the end of 2017, called QAnon. And I got very interested in it. So I posted about it on Facebook. I read about it. I talked about it. I asked questions about it. The problem with that is, though, is I was allowed to believe things that weren't true. And I would ask questions about them and talk about them. And that is absolutely what I regret. Because if it weren't for the Facebook post and and comments that I liked in 2018, I wouldn't be standing here today and you couldn't point a finger and accuse me of anything wrong. Uh, Patricia, her remarks are getting a lot of attention this morning, partly because people find them a bit confusing and because at no point does she really apologize for uh, what she's uh, uh, said. Yes? Yes. I think the most confusing part of her speech was her saying that she was allowed to believe things on the Internet. Um, I think we all recognize it's our responsibility to not believe everything we read, especially um, uh, Miss Green said she is the first to graduate college. She is a um, very successful businesswoman from her family's business. She is not living in a corner of the world without extra information and extra context. Um, And she's really quite sophisticated in a lot of the ways that she does go about her politics. So I think saying she was allowed to believe something really diminished later when she said, and and I regret that I said those things. There was no apology um, for the things that she has said. And I think more important than what she said is what she has done. That is what bothers Democrats the most, um, specifically posing with an AR-15 next to a picture of three congresswomen who are sitting in the chamber um, and saying Democrats must be stopped and pointing the gun at the congresswomen. Um, And that was in 2019. That was not ancient history. And then also uh, her chasing David Hogg across the Capitol complex when he had just survived the school shooting at Parkland and was going to lobby for gun control or gun safety. Um, that was in 2019. So again, these are not the actions of a naive, um, confused person. These were very deliberate mm. and with no apology um, to join that. Literally, if she were to go ask for a, a meeting on Capitol Hill and any member of Congress just Googled her name and, and saw these things, they would be worried about meeting with her. They would be worried about meeting with a woman who posed with an AR-15 next to three congresswomen. It would, they would be worried. And now she's in the chamber and has made, had made no apology. Um, and I think it's, it remains a serious problem. Um, Senator Butler, as somebody who's been in a public office for as many years as you have, you understand how important it is that you're able to represent your constituents with some mm-hmm. uh, uh, power with some authority. What does it mean to the uh, constituents of hers in the 14th Congressional District that she will no longer have seats 
on uh, committees? How does that impact whether they're going to be able to get anything, she can get anything done on behalf of her constituents? Well, Bill, I think um, it's a little too late for um, Marjorie Green to say that she did not know. Uh, it sounds like she didn't know what she was reading, but she's a smart woman. She certainly does not have any power to do anything for her constituency back home. And I think she does represent her constituency with her belief. Uh, if you look at some of the interviews that they did in her district, they believe in her. And apparently they believe the same thing. She's just, she's not sorry. She didn't apologize. She's only uh, sorry because she's been chastised. She's been caught. And now she's being punished, rightfully so. So, so, uh, so Bri- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Finish from, up. From please. now on, to she has to she has to be careful about what she's saying. She should think before she speaks. Well, we'll see how that happens, Brian. And then Donna, I want to get both of you involved in this conversation. Brian, uh, you're really good at communications. It's one of you. You were the communications director for the first term of Governor Nathan Deal. You know how this works. I don't know if you've seen it yet this morning, but Sam Bermestaws passed on to me a morning quote. Uh, from a, from her from a, a morning tweet by Marjorie Taylor Greene, she says, "I woke up early this morning, literally laughing, thinking about what a bunch of morons the Democrats mm. plus eleven, meaning the eleven Republicans who also voted to strip her of her committee mm-hmm. assignments, are giving someone like me free time in this Democrat." Tyrannical government, conservative Republicans have no committees anyway, have no say on committees anyway. Brian, oh, this is going to be uh, fun. Kind of messaging you think that uh, a client of yours should be putting out after being rebuked the way she was, Brian? (laughs) Well, that is the sort of rhetoric that got her to where she is. Let's not forget that. I mean, look, this has worked for her. And one point that I've continued to make is these comments that are being used against her, the reason for stripping her from her committee were things she said before being a member of Congress. The people who voted for her were not unaware of them. There's some of that like, oh, my God, we didn't know about, those, about the Jewish space laser. Uh, and, and I didn't see that quote until uh, recently, but we knew about the David Hogg video. Uh, we knew about the QAnon uh, uh, tweets and Facebook posts. No, this was a surprise. And they... The voters have the information, and they made a decision. And whether or not you like her, and I know many people don't like her, and that's fine, she represents the people who elected her. And she has a right to to serve in Congress the way that any other member does. And I, last year, was one of the people raising the alarm. Patricia knows this. I was out there going, please, please, let's make sure people know the product they're buying. And if they choose it, they choose it. But I was part of the effort to educate them on her history and her rhetoric. I thought her comments yesterday were, were fairly well done. I, I disagree that she doesn't apologize. I think saying I regret is an apology. It is saying mm-hmm. I was wrong and, mm-hmm. I, I, and I'm going to do better. And I, I don't know that the tweet today really backs up that, that sentiment or that, that message. It cuts across it, actually. But uh, I think that... What we saw yesterday is something that uh, smart researchers and writers and academics need to look into. She goes into how she was radicalized, you know, how she came to believe some of these things. And we, mm-hmm. we, we might like to believe it's just a handful of folks, just tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of folks who are out there who have gone through that same process, people who are searching for answers. And I'll tell you one thing that I hear, Bill, over and over again from Republicans is this phrase. They'll, they'll cite some fact or something they've, they've seen somewhere, whether in mainstream news or on the Internet, and they'll go, but who knows what to believe anymore? There has been such a diminution of faith and trust in mainstream media on the right that they have sought out alternative sources of information that all too often take advantage of that audience. And I don't think that this is just happening on the right. I think it's another thing that makes the right mad. We're like we're the only ones who have uh, this fantasy land. We're not. But I think that's how it, it is a product of the uh, collapse of trust in our institutions. 
Okay, so um, Donna, Brian is right. He did, on our show, on any number of occasions, warn about Marjorie Taylor Greene's, uh, Greene's extremist uh, uh, rhetoric. Um, but he also said something I think is worth unpacking for all of us to talk about. What Brian kind of suggests, when he says she represents the views of her constituents, they agree with her. In some ways, that's the parallel to what we saw with four years of Donald Trump as president. It was about ideology. It was about uh, a, a, a philosophy of uh, being an outsider. Uh, it was about promoting specious uh, uh, conspiracies. And it was almost never about legislating or accomplishing anything. So to say she represents the views of her constituents is to say what? That what they want there is someone who will uh, uh, talk a good game but isn't, isn't there to accomplish a legislative agenda. I, I find that an interesting approach. Yeah, I think, I think we're talking about just a few constituents when it comes to it, first of all. I mean, I talked to a lawmaker at the Capitol who is very embarrassed by what's going on with her. And there, there are people who aren't speaking in her district as loudly as those who support her who are not happy about what she's doing. And I had one lawmaker tell me that he was, look, he was hoping that they would strip her of those committees. Mm -hmm. So uh, she reminded me when she was standing up there, and, and I, don't, I don't think that she was apologizing, <clears throat> that she reminded me of my kids when they get in trouble. And, I, um, and they, they're so sorry for what they did at, at that time. I think she, she may be a little sorry, but only in the moment because the spotlight was on her and she needed to say something to try to save things. But the other part of this is her star has risen. Uh, people know her name that didn't know her name. She's probably of the freshmen, uh, uh, congressmen who, uh, congressmen and women who've come in, you know, the most well-known at this point. And I think she'll use this to her advantage down the line, and I think others will use it to her advantage. Um, the other thing that struck me, and that was uh, Repre State Representative Josh McLaurin tweeted last night. He said, Georgia respectfully requests a brief timeout from national attention. A few minutes will do fine. <laughs> we have had so much attention on Georgia in recent months, especially since the election. I think people are ready for somebody else to get a lot of attention. Uh, so I, I thought that was a, uh, a spot-on remark on his his part. We will continue to, I think, hear about her, and we will continue to hear uh, about things that she's done. But I think yesterday it was just sort of like maybe too little, too late, and I'm sorry because I'm in trouble. So, uh, Patricia and then Senator uh, Butler, I, I want to uh, add something to the mix. Uh, Donna is correct when she says suddenly her star has risen. Uh, we talked the other day on the show about the fact that Morning Consult, which is a pretty respected uh, polling organization these days, uh, had showed that 46% of voters nationwide have views about Marjorie Taylor Greene, which is up 21 points. It's more than double people's recognition of her back just in August of last year, and even though a third hold unfavorable views of her, 13% like the way she's comporting herself, and she's raising, Patricia, a ton of money uh, right now. So one more uh, element that I'll add to this is uh, uh, Amelia Brock just sent me a funny headline from uh, – uh, the Onion, the satiric uh, news, newspaper, uh, online newspaper, which said pundits worry that Marjorie Taylor Greene now has time on her hands. But that's exactly right. <laughs> Being stripped. I mean, that's not even funny. Being stripped of her committee assignments. Right. Her new role is going to be to continue to be a provocateur, I would think, uh, Patricia mm. and then Senator Butler. Yes, there was an entire genre of journalism uh, for some time of what does Steve King do all day after he was stripped of his committee assignments. <laughs> he would just sit in his office and not do a whole lot and kind of wander around. Um, but that was a very different situation because um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, I don't think she was looking to do a lot of legislating in the first mm. place. Um, since she has been elected. We did a little digging into sort of how she's been spending not just her time, but also her money. She has been advertising on Parler, which is the 
um, conservative social media platform. Um, she spent about $200,000 advertising on Parler. And the next closest uh, person to advertise, any member of Congress, spent $1,000. Um, and she was just plowing tons of money to raise her profile and to raise money from those super, super conservatives on Parler. And it's very clear that, to me, she has what Brian has called an it factor. I mean, it is very offensive to many people, but it is wildly attractive to a subset of Republicans. And I think that we will see her at CPAC. She's going to be very in demand on OAN. And she did say that Fox News was not a trusted source of news for her yesterday. So I don't know about Fox News. She's going to be a national sensation for a certain subset of Republicans. Now, she's going to create tons of headaches for other Republicans. Mm -hmm. And the DCCC, which is the Democratic campaign arm on Capitol Hill, has already run ads against sitting members of Congress, moderate Republicans, with pictures of Marjorie Taylor Greene. So we should get used to seeing her face and hearing from her. Um, and I think particularly for Republicans, she is going to cause a lot of problems. Um, Senator, what are your Republican colleagues in the Senate saying about her comportment right now? Absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> I, I tend to uh, agree with Patricia on um, Marjorie's uh, agenda. She had an agenda before she ever left Georgia. And she got to D.C. and she worked her agenda. And now she has time to still wreak havoc in the Republican Party. The thing that should have happened, I think that if the Republicans had stepped up to the plate and took charge and did what the Democrats did for them, which was to strip her of a committee, she might have a different attitude this morning. But they did not take charge and strip her of those committees. They let Democrats do it. And now they, they're getting what they deserve. Although her okay. district does not deserve this. The people in her district does not deserve for her to be elected to represent them and then get to Congress and not be able to do anything. Okay, so Brian, let's. Uh, I want to talk just for a couple more minutes about this in a in a larger uh, uh, world of politics, um, and then we'll move on to uh, other topics. So, Brian, what kind of uh, challenges does her ascendancy and the fact that, with the exception of eleven members of the House, every Republican uh, supported her, uh, 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 voted against stripping of her committee assignments? We are told by reliable sources, I don't mean we, but journalists in, on the Hill were told by reliable sources that when Marjorie Taylor Greene addressed the Republican conference in their Wednesday night meeting, she got a standing ovation from maybe as many as a half of them. So as we look to a 2022 cycle here in Georgia, where you've got a Brian Kemp who's going to have some... Uh, some challenges in running his reelection campaign when you've got a divided Republican Party here in terms of attitude about Donald Trump and whether the election here was stolen against him or not. What? How does she exacerbate the problems that Republicans face moving into another election cycle? Or, or do you think she doesn't? Well, what Marjorie Taylor Greene does is give a tool to the Democrats to divide Republicans and uh, to try to make her the face of what the Republican Party is. Uh, Republicans do the exact same thing with Nancy Pelosi, with AOC, with uh, Representative Omar, Representative Tlaib. And uh, let us not forget that uh, Representative Omar was actually censured by the House uh, sometime in the last Congress for anti-Semitic comments. And so many Republicans were making the point on the floor yesterday, well, if y'all acknowledge what she said was wrong and offensive, why wasn't she stripped of her committee assignment? Why is it a different standard when it's when it's a Republican? But what Republicans have to do is to not be distracted by this. You know, and this is one of the powers of the majority. The House Democrats are able to make Marjorie Taylor Greene the discussion of the entire nation for the last couple of days by doing this move. 
And so Republicans can't stop that because they don't have the majority. But I think we can't be in a position where members or candidates are constantly responding to questions from the media about something that Marjorie Taylor Greene has said. Do, do you agree with this? Do you condemn this? Oh, you didn't condemn it. Therefore, you must agree with it. No. I, I think they have to ignore it. They have to quit responding to it and, and move on and drive their own message. And, you know, one of the limits is that Marjorie Taylor Greene crowds out their message because she's got the loudest megaphone. Because what she is saying is the most interesting. It's, it's what the media, uh, where we get our information, those people go to her because it's, it's, uh, it's clickbait, right? And, and that's the, that, so that's one of the dilemmas that we face. I don't think Marjorie Taylor Greene endorsing Kelly Leffler helped Kelly Leffler in the January the 5th runoff. In fact, it may have been a net negative for her there. Uh, we can't let folks like, uh, like those voices represent us. Because that message may win in Northwest Georgia, but it will not win statewide. And Republicans, if they're going to win that 50-50 state, have got to be, one, unified and get all factions of the party, including those who like Marjorie Taylor Greene, let me say, uh, to come together and show up and vote. And a lot of Marjorie Taylor Greene's um, district didn't vote in the January 5th runoff, as the AJC reported with a great graphic that really tells the tale this week. And uh, go check that map out if you haven't. Um, and we have got to also persuade the independents, the people in the middle, to come our way. And we've got to have a, a broad message for that. And uh, what she is doing is not a broad message. Okay. Um, Don, I want to give you a last comment before I've got to get to a break. But I think let, let me just ask you about uh, Brian. Uh it, Brian says it's Democrats who have uh, made her the center of attention. I think one could argue it was Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> and the way she <laughs> behaves herself that brought the attention of the country uh, to her. And let's also add that Republicans could have taken action independently, as they did when Steve King uh, made his offensive remarks about uh, white supremacy being acceptable mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. And in fact, the problem is they left it to Democrats to clean up what I think most sensible people think is a mess that she created herself. No, I totally agree with that. I think, think uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene has cultivated this. This, this, this was, uh, as she and her supporters have wanted this. Uh, they, they have worked toward this. Just, it's just been building and building. We saw it here in Georgia. It is now a, a, a national presence. And this is something that they, they that they've wanted. Uh, they, I think they like all of this attention that's taking place right now and that the mm -hmm. Democrats had to respond in some way. They couldn't leave this alone. They couldn't have her out there saying the things that she's been saying, um, talking, uh, even though she claims that these are things that she uh, believed before she, she took office. They, they had to do something about it. And when they allowed the Republicans to do something and they did not do anything, that they had to take a stand. And they've done that. Okay, uh, let's get our first break of the show out of the way. Let's move on from Marjorie Taylor Greene. There's a lot happening in the state legislature. We'll talk about that and more with our panel after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Lawmakers host Donna Lowry, Republican political consultant and communications expert Brian Robinson, Senator Gloria Butler, the minority leader in the state Senate. Uh, Senator, uh, one real quick note that I wanted to mention at the top. You represent a couple of firsts as the elected minority leader in the Georgia Senate, don't you? I do. First woman being elected as minority leader ever. Are, are you the first African-American minority or ah. majority leader in the state Senate? Yes, I am. First African-American. That's what I thought. Well, I, I, think it's a, I think it's important for our listeners to know that. And Patricia Murphy, I, I want to – I should have, when I introduced you, said, of course, your column will appear on Wednesdays and Sundays 
I believe you're going to continue that pattern established by Galloway. You're also taking on the role of overseeing the uh, uh, Political Insider blog, which appears on AJC.com. And I want to talk to you about an item, just briefly, that was in the (laughs) jolt the other day, which has to do with um, putting a statue of John Lewis in Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol, where each state is allowed to have two statues representing uh, leaders of their states. And the reason it's worth mentioning is, although uh, the legislature, I think the, the House, if I got this right, uh, said this was a good idea to use, make it John Lewis, there are some pushback now from members, Republicans, who are saying, gee, maybe we should have someone who better represents unity. Oh. Maybe it should be Hank Aaron. Patricia? I got that right? Uh, Yes, I wouldn't call it uh, strong pushback. I would call it um, chatter, uh, growing chatter, I guess you could call it. We've spoken with um, multiple Republicans um, about what's going on. Um, Only one so far has said, don't you, maybe instead of John Lewis, we should have a more unifying figure like Hank Aaron, maybe people in sports are more unifying and less polarizing than John Lewis. Um, And the thinking is that because John Lewis did not um, go to President Donald Trump's inauguration, wasn't that a little bit polarizing? Um, So I don't know that this is going to have a chance of really getting um, turned back uh, because the governor and uh, the speaker and the lieutenant governor both have said they would like to see John Lewis, this John Lewis statue, um, in Statuary Hall on Capitol Hill and to replace um, the vice president of the Confederacy, whose statue is currently there. Um, there yeah. are two statues in Statuary Hall. The second from Georgia is Crawford Long, uh, the medical research pioneer. Um, Georgia could have both Hank Aaron and John Lewis in Statuary Hall if people really wanted to. I do think that if there were an effort to replace John Lewis with Hank Aaron, it probably would upset both families. Um, I don't think anybody thinks that those two gentlemen and icons should be pitted against each other for an honor. Um, so yeah. I don't know that this is going to gain a whole lot of momentum, but it was it was real enough and surprising enough that we decided to include that in the jolt. Okay, well, thank you. It caught my eye, and I don't want to make more of it than maybe needs to yes. be made of it at this moment. So let's uh, turn to other legislative matters. Donald Lowry, you've been watching something, and I'll ask Senator Butler to jump in on this as well, uh, and Brian, too. Uh, you've been watching something interesting unfold from your perch at Lawmakers. When Governor Kemp uh, unveiled his uh, supplemental budget proposals, he added virtually no money or only a tiny amount of money to the State Department of Public Health budget, this in the midst of a pandemic, uh, and a State Department of Public Health clearly uh, uh, that is taking on monumental tasks right now. Um, But legislators are pushing back. First, the House budget writers said, no, no, state DPH absolutely needs more money. And then Senate budget uh, uh, writers followed their lead and said, yeah, we've got to put more money into the Department of Public Health. why the governor seems to think donna that he just needs to rely on the federal money coming in he doesn't need to add state funds yeah that's right the focus from the governor has been on the cares money and um and thinking that that's going to be enough when it comes to the department of public health but it clearly everybody else clearly realizes that they've had a a lot going on in during this pandemic that that department has had to pull in people i mean even even as much as just even the press that um the information that's being released that office has really had a tough time really early on uh trying to even get the information on cuz they just didn't have the staffing to take care of that so there has been a move toward um, in both chambers to make sure they shore up that department a little bit more. The other question that has been coming out is, okay, so there is this CARES money. Where is it? How much has been used? Those kind of questions are still out there in terms of people wondering what um, what exactly DPH is receiving, what have they received, and, and is there more needed? And, and there's a feeling that maybe that some of that money would help 
improve the situation with back, getting vaccines to Georgia. That's not necessarily true. But there is a lot of there are still a lot of questions when it comes to figuring out what DPH needs and recognizing how important that department is in this state in the middle of a pandemic. Senator Butler, weigh in on, on state DPH funding and um, the kind of job you see them doing so far on dealing with uh, the pandemic. Well, first of all, Georgia ranks 37th in the nation in public <coughs> health spending. So we have to increase our public health budget. We're dealing with a pandemic. We're dealing with uh, people in the hospital, people dying. And so there has to be more money. After all, the, the health department still do all of the things that they are charged to do, such as taking care of, of uh, women and children. They are still doing those things. They are still screening for HIV and AIDS. They are still doing all of the work that's all, that always goes up in the public health department. And specifically uh, on the vaccine, uh, vaccine rollout has been hampered by problems that are directly related to our underfunded system. And we should not be surprised that a system has been asked to do more with less year after year. And, and it's not able to handle the unpredictable extreme needs of a global pandemic. That technology issues. Uh, we've heard that some of the people most in need are unable to access the vaccine. Uh, they can't get on the system to get appointments. Uh, people are still going without the vaccine. Uh, the governor claims that the problem is that we're not getting enough vaccines. But if you don't have a plan in place where people can get appointments and get to the appointments, then what do you do? So there's got to be uh, more done. There has to be more Brian. money put in the budget. And right now the uh, Senate is, um, I, I think we'll get the budget next week, and hopefully that extra money will go in the budget for all of these things. Um, Brian, the um, once again, it strikes me that uh, aside from uh, other issues at stake here, uh, communication has become an enormous uh, part of the problem. I, the mm -hmm. AJC, and I'm going to get Patricia in on this in a minute, too, I thought the AJC the other day uh, ran a front-page story, which I thought was kind of shocking. Ariel Hart and Carrie Teagarden were the uh, uh, reporters on it. Um, the vaccine is not getting out the way that it needs to. The lead of that story uh, says the Grady Memorial Hospital, which, of course, by the way, services the underserved people, the poor in many minorities in our uh, region, they had expected to get a fairly significant uh, supply of vaccine last week. And they were told they were getting none at all. They had to go to the state and argue to get 220 doses uh, to be able to uh, provide. DeKalb County got nothing, according to this story in uh, the AJC. And, and part of it is that... Uh, the, the reporters point out that people are just th these health departments and these uh, health organizations like Grady are just not in the loop on just what's coming their way. This is strikes me as an enormous problem. It may start at the federal level. Maybe state and local uh, public health organization uh, agencies are trying to cope with what is a federal problem. But I think everybody's confused, Brian. Mm. Well, I mean, uh, Joe Biden's been in office for almost two weeks now. I don't know why he hasn't fixed this yet. I think that's a question <laughs> we, need to be, we need to be asking ourselves. Um, I, I think that Governor Kemp has done a good job of communicating with Georgians about the dilemma that we face. And I want to give him credit because, particularly in the last couple of weeks, he has done a really good job of constantly going out and holding events to talk about what we're doing on vaccine. He did one at the Kroger in Brookhaven this week. This was a uh, vaccine site. He did 
a vaccine site in Cobb County earlier this week. So they are out there. And I, you know, I heard Cody Hoff, his, his spokesperson, who has my old office there in the Capitol, uh, doing long-form interviews on what they're doing with, with the COVID response. So they are talking to us. What they are saying, if we will listen, is they don't have the supplies. And there's nobody at the Department of Public Health going, nah, not your 80, not the Cade County, nope. Uh, that's not what's happening. They simply don't have the supplies, and it is a federal issue. They can't invent this stuff out of thin air. And, uh, and, and certainly, I don't think anybody thinks that everything's gone perfectly. I don't think anybody's making that argument. But the governor's office is doing what it can, and it is telling us the facts. And the facts are we don't have enough yet. So this is going to be a slower process than what we want, but uh, but it's going as quickly as it can, and we're getting them out when we get the uh, the doses. Patricia? Yeah. Well, Brian said that it's not a federal, that it is a federal issue. Um, it is a nationwide issue, and until right. two weeks ago, it was not a federal issue. It is now a federal issue because the White House has said, we need to take charge of this. We need to decide. But before two weeks ago, there was not a federal plan to gather mm-hmm. vaccines and distribute vaccines. States were told to reach out to the companies themselves mm-hmm. and get as many vaccines as they think they need based on their per capita needs. Um, when one governor said, oh, I need, to, I need to access the national stockpile called the White House. The White House this is the governor of Oregon. The White House said, well, there's not a national stockpile. What are you talking about? Um, so this was a, a, a responsibility that the Trump White House believed was not something that should be done at the federal level, and it should be done at the state level, which is how the entire pandemic has been approached and addressed in most cases. Um, I think that is changing. Um, however, now there is simply a shortage of vaccine at the federal level. States are not getting what they believe they were going to get. And counties are being asked to do something they've never done before, which is to physically bring in every citizen in their county twice to give them Mm -hmm. a vial of a vaccine. It has just not been done in our lifetimes. And so it's just this massive, massive problem. Um, And at the same time, you know, we've got these variants sort of ripping through the country um, and so I certainly think you're hearing that kind of anxiety. I do think the governor's office is trying uh, to do the best they can. I think everybody's trying to do, do the best they can. Um, and the White House now has made a plan to federalize this operation, which I think is a good choice. Uh, Patricia, uh, you wrote a very moving column about Speaker Ralston, who, who has said a couple of times publicly um, that about the friends that he has lost. And you explored that with him in greater depth. We're going to, Sam, let's post a link to Patricia's column so our uh, people who don't necessarily read the AJC every day can take a look at it. But Patricia, uh, the speaker spoke pretty movingly to you about Mm -hmm. uh, the personal toll it's taken in his life. Yeah, so when, in that episode that we all saw when the speaker kicked uh, David Clark out of the House chamber, who is the representative from Buford, a Republican, Republican kicking out a Republican, um, <laughs> immediately after that happened, and it was done because David Clark had refused to be tested for COVID, and the speaker has required for all staff and members to be tested twice a week so that they're not spreading it amongst themselves. Immediately after that happened, he has a sort of an ante room where reporters go to ask him questions. And he was talking about it. He said, look, this is just too important. You know, we've all lost people. And he said, I, and they just sort of paused for a minute and he started tearing up and he said, I've lost two friends in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, everybody has, you know, so this is, we're not going to play games with this. And then he said that, moved on, started talking about something else. Um, but I really was very curious. It was very obvious. And he's talked about how many funerals he's gone to um, or that he's been to many funerals. Um, I was very curious to find out not just his personal experience, but how that's informed his decisions at the Capitol um, and how it could affect policy going forward. And so that's really what we talked about. Um, and he lives in Blue Ridge, Georgia, in Northwest Georgia, a very small town. Um, He's lost track of how many funerals. He thinks it's about 15 to 20 of friends who have died from COVID. Um, and it has informed how he um, requires a lot of 
protocols. And um, even from the beginning, at the very beginning of this last March, uh, he closed down his side of the Capitol pretty quickly. And the same day, the president on Capitol Hill said, this will go away very quickly. And I'm seeing mm. tremendous things. And it's no, it's a lot. It's a lot better than the flu. Um, and so uh, the speaker's taken a very different approach. And, and that's what the column is about. Mm-hmm. Got to get to a break. Uh, when we come back, Don Lowry, I want to get you to lead us off in a conversation about a couple other things that are popping in the state legislature this session. We'll do that uh, after these messages. <laughs> Don Lowry, I th- the legislature they're out they're out today. Is that correct? That's right. They're out today, and so, they're in on Monday. But we don't know what happens after Monday yet. <laughs> right. There's no schedule. My, the reason I yeah. asked you that, and of course Senator Butler knows that as well. But I asked you that that's because right. it means lawmakers is on the air on the nights that the the legislature is in session. So you won't have a full blown show tonight, but you'll be back Monday. And one of the things that you're looking at along with all the rest of us are all of these election bills that that have been uh, uh, coming in fast and furious. Uh, and and one of them that's uh, gained gained some traction yesterday was the measure that would require people who want absentee ballots to have to apply for them at least a week or more earlier than is now allowed. The the rationale by the Republicans on this one is that uh, it will mean that ballots will come in sooner. You won't have these ballots showing up at maybe seven o'clock on election night. And and but that's just one of the measures that Republicans are promoting, Donna. No, that's right. I mean, to be honest with you, uh, we started off the week thinking, okay, last week and the last few weeks, we've dealt with the the coronavirus in terms of the speaker uh, kicking out David Clark and then, you know, different things involving that. And we thought, well, things are moving along pretty slow. The amended budget was was, uh, pushed through, at least through the House and the Senate is dealing with it. And then it was an evening earlier this week, I believe either Monday or Tuesday evening, where we got this drop in all of these election uh, bills. Um, uh, The big focus, of course, ending the 24-7 drop boxes for ballot returns, limiting voted vote by mail options during the pandemic, uh, ending voter registration when obtaining a license, which we have here in Georgia. But this big one that got a lot of attention yesterday in a committee hearing was focused on the fact that right now you can ask for an absentee ballot up till the Friday before the election. Now they're pushing that back uh, so that it's um, uh, more than a week, um, at least a week ahead of time. So there is a a lot of focus on election bills right now, a lot of pushback. The other part of it is we there's um, Representative Charlize Bird of Woodstock has a bill introduced that is focused on not just the voter ID that um, that is being asked, you know, they're asking for, and when it comes to absentee ballots, both be, when you ask for the ballot and when you turn it in. But she right. wants to make sure that the that the voter ID doesn't have the words "bearer not a U.S. citizen, not voter ID" printed on the actual license. So um, there, um, this was like a, a like a, a bomb <laughs> that dropped in terms of the Democrats in uh, in the Gold Dome earlier this week, and I I know that Senator Butler can get into this a little bit more, but there was there is immense pushback on all of this. Senator Democrats are working uh, ferociously, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> to try to fight off. Uh, some of these measures, because the question is, are these really voter security measures or are these voter suppression measures? You said it, Bill. They are voter suppression measures. Um, who does, who goes backwards in um, in this country? We should not be going backwards trying to make it more difficult for voters to cast their ballots. One of our top priorities coming into the legislature this year was to protect voters' rights to the ballot. And Republicans had discussed, um, you know, making do, coming up with these measures to reduce voting 
And that's what it does. It suppresses the vote. It, it makes it harder for people to get to the polls. It makes it harder for people to use the absentee ballots. When you use absentee ballots, you should not have to have an excuse. It, it fared out in the past election. 1.2 million people used the absentee ballot. Republicans made that law. They didn't use it. Democrats did. So now they're unhappy because they didn't win. Brian, let me turn to you because we're really running out of time. And I, I think uh, Senator Butler made her a, a strong point there. But we're seeing now that a, a vast majority of Georgians support having some kind of security measures put in place, a photo ID requirement for absentee ballots. We saw a sea change in 2020. Uh, formerly, 5 to 7 percent of Georgians voted absentee, and that percentage soared uh, for obvious reasons, because people didn't want to go stand in line during a pandemic. And so the question becomes, is this a sea change that will continue? Is this permanently change the behavior of Georgians? And if it is, we need to make sure that those voting by absentee uh, go through the same security processes that those who vote in person do. That's all this does. And let me point out, as far as the voter suppression thing goes, that, you know, whenever Republicans say voter fraud, uh, the media goes, comma, of which there is no evidence, comma. No one says voter suppression, comma, of which there's no evidence, even though there's no evidence. I mean, Democrats have been crying voter suppression for years here. And what have we seen? We have seen record turnout after record turnout. And this last election, we saw black Georgians voting at a higher percentage than white Georgians did. So this idea that all of the stuff we've done has lowered turnout, it's got no evidence to back it up. Uh, Patricia, we are so close to out of time, but this is a subject. What Brian just said is a conversation that we're going to continue on on this show. But I think there are those who would argue voter suppression has been proven on a number of occasions. But we'll talk about it in the shows ahead. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think we live in a state where voter suppression was once the culture, not just a um, a sideshow. And it's always got to be remembered when we're having these conversations. All right. I, I apologize for having to cut the conversation short, but we are really out of time. Gloria Butler, Brian Robinson, Donna Lowry, Patricia Murphy, thank you for being here. We are going to do a show with public health experts on Monday about where we stand with coronavirus, uh, the variants, where we stand with vaccines. So I hope you'll join us uh, for that show. Amelia Brock, Sam Burmistaz, Jesse Neiswanger, thanks for another good week of working behind the scenes to make the show happen. Uh, I'll see you all on Monday. I'm Bill Niga. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear two masks. Let's be really safe. Bye-bye, everybody. Have a great weekend.